Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. And this week we are joined by Philip Reynolds, who is a digital specialist at the Heritage Foundation, also uh, very much an aficionado of history, which is why we brought him on today, of course. He's written for the Virginia Pilot about Civil War history and wrote a great piece for the Daily Signal called The Black Regiment That Began in American Tradition. He wrote this for Veterans Day, but I thought it would be great to bring him on the show to talk about the tradition of this regiment and talk about his piece. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's go right into it. You, you talk about this black regiment that began American tradition. I think many Americans maybe have heard of this regiment. Obviously, there was a very popular Hollywood movie. Can, can you explain to us who they were? Yeah. So the 54th Massachusetts is kind of a, in you know Civil War historical circles, it is the African-American regiment. They really started this tradition of African-Americans serving in the American military. Although there was this you know, sprinkling of black troops and black regiments here and there, it was really only in very limited numbers. And even though some of them, you know, were federally sanctioned, some were irregulars or volunteer units, we really don't see black regiments at large in Union forces until the Emancipation Proclamation. So the 54th was formed largely thanks to Massachusetts governor at the time, Governor John Andrew. He had pushed for black units to be allowed to fight. He was a big abolitionist. So when the Emancipation Proclamation was put forth by Lincoln, one of the things it allowed for was black combat units, specifically infantry. And so, of course, the 54th was formed right away. Robert Shaw led it as their as their officer, and they kind of became famous through the movie Glory that depicts their formation as a regiment, some of the difficulties that I'm sure not only they but a lot of black troops endured during the Civil War, both from their own side and the enemy. But it really immortalized their attack on Fort Wagner, which kind of marked them as combat troops who were as capable, if not more capable, than white combat troops. Absolutely. I think highlighting the story, their story, and I think many others, especially now, you know, we are having these debates over American history, especially in light of you know the so-called 1619 Project, which I think portrays a lot of American history as a history of a series of oppressions, all stemming from slavery. And does less to actually bring out the stories of of heroism and triumph. I think certainly the 54th Massachusetts is that history of triumph, and certainly not not the only history. I think that there's a much bigger history there beyond just that unit, too. Oh, absolutely. If you look really throughout conflicts that the United States has been involved in, there are units that are either strictly minorities or predominantly minorities who have served with quite a lot of distinction in foreign wars. I say we look at, you know, let's look at World War One. You have the 369th Infantry. That is a all-black infantry unit, mostly from New York, and they went and they were sent over to France initially, and they served as, again, digging latrines, ensuring that logistics and supplies were carried through properly, but the French needed fighters. They had you know, been fighting for a while on the Western Front. They were pretty drained of manpower, so... American command sent these soldiers pretty untrained over to go fight with French forces. They attached them to, I believe, the 4th French Army. Hmm. And sure enough, these troops fought quite hard. They're called the Harlem Hellfighters, and they're Mm -hmm. called that because the Germans became so afraid of them 
they fought ferociously. They were brutal. And even despite their lack of training, they fought as hard, if not harder, than most U.S. forces over there at the time. They saw more combat than any U.S. unit in World War One. Yeah, it's really amazing. I guess following up on that point, uh, you, you did write about in World War II, and that this was a, a time when certainly Japanese-Americans were facing real oppression. The internment camps, Japanese-Americans also made a big contribution to fighting that. Yeah, mm-hmm. do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there were actually 6,000 Japanese-Americans who served in the military intelligence service. And then they also formed a few different combat units. So the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, they were a strictly Japanese-American force. Japanese-Americans also created the bulk of the 399th Engineer Construction Battalion and also the 100th Infantry Battalion. Now, the 100th Infantry Battalion saw heavy action in Italy to the point they sustained so many casualties they were actually nicknamed the Purple Heart Battalion. And that's not at all a derogatory nickname or something with a negative connotation. Actually, I think it marks and embodies their bravery and their willingness to put themselves in harm's way, fighting for a country who was not necessarily doing a lot of good for their ethnicity on the home front. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole history, frankly, of integration in the U.S. military is very interesting. In some sense, the military is integrated before the rest of society has and has gone through some Periods where it's kind of gone forward on that and sometimes backwards. I think it's interesting that you know you go back all the way to the Revolutionary War and the military is actually quite integrated. It doesn't only just have uh, regiments that are black but ones that are integrated black and white serving together. I think actually Alexander Hamilton, when he actually saw combat at, at the Battle of Yorktown, when he charged readout number 10, I believe his regiment was about 75 percent black at the time. So that was very common. And of course, then you have this long period after the Revolutionary War, which there actually was, uh, I would say, more. I mean, there were really no black troops serving in the U.S. military. It was deeply segregated. Right. You did have this brief moment during the War of 1812, I think very importantly, at the Battle of New Orleans, where you did have – the so-called free men of color who served under Andrew Jackson during that battle. In fact, Jackson made this kind of famous proclamation saying that not only are they going to serve, they're going to also be paid the same. They're going to be treated you know, equally and fairly like the white troops. It was a very dramatic kind of moment. And a lot of those men ultimately ended up serving. Right. A lot of, in later wars, their children mm-hmm. ended up serving in a, in a regiment during the Civil War, which I think you brought up in this article. I think it's very important that not just the 54th Massachusetts, but the Native Guard uh, mm-hmm. of Louisiana, which was actually a regiment starting the Civil War, has this legacy from the War of 1812. Can you talk a little bit about them? The Native Louisiana Guard was formed actually as a Confederate unit, which is pretty controversial. It wasn't completely crazy to see Confederates impressing black Americans into service because they were so low on manpower. But what was crazy about the native Louisiana Guard is when Union forces took New Orleans in the spring of 1862, fell relatively early in the war, part of the Anaconda Plan, capture port cities, take the rivers. The Navy did a very good job of that. So New Orleans fell pretty quickly, and the regiment as a whole went over to the Union forces led by Major General Benjamin Butler, who was – He's a whole uh, bag of information himself, but he did quite a lot of work abolition-wise within the military. As an abolitionist, as a politician, then within the military, he worked really hard to bring black men to the fighting front. But regardless, he was in command of forces, and so they came over and they ended up serving as a union unit, so kind of switching over, which is not something you really see during the Civil War. It's pretty rare to see an entire unit 
go over. I actually don't know of any examples of that happening anywhere else. Yeah, it, it would be quite unusual. I mean, it, you could kind of. I mean, it seems so peculiar from from one point of view. At the same time, I think a lot of a lot of those who originally joined. You know, they were – they did feel like they were showing up and defending what they saw as their state. A lot of these people, they, they weren't slaves. They were freed men. A lot right. of them were wealthier, thought of as respectable parts of the community, felt that, you know, this is a way to show that they're loyal to what would be their state, their country, so to speak. And obviously, you know, initially I think they were very well uh, accepted by the people in New Orleans, Louisiana. But I think very quickly people started to see how problematic it was, especially the Confederate government, which saw integration of any kind of black troops in a combat role is deeply problematic especially based on what the Confederate cause generally was. Interesting to see them so-called flip sides to the side of the Union, but to a certain, there is a kind of logic to it there. And certainly this unit served with quite a bit of distinction, too. They actually served in a combat role at the Battle of, I believe, Port Hudson was a significant mm-hmm. role. And I think what's really amazing is one of those who served, an officer by the name of Andre Collot, who I think served with incredible distinction. He was very well-known during his own time, it was one of the first black officers in the country, which is quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't get a lot of publicity, obviously. You know, the 54th Massachusetts right. get, gets a lot of the publicity as the first federal regiment. Federally sanctioned, yeah. Federally sanctioned regiment. But certainly the action at Port Hudson was no less heroic, I think, than what the 54th Massachusetts. And Andre Collot, who was a businessman in his community, who served with distinction, was an officer, was killed at this battle. Mm. There were a lot of people saying that he should have gotten more credit for what he did. In fact, one of those who served alongside him, I think this is a great quote, said, If ever patriotic heroism deserved to be honored in stately marble or in brass, that of Captain Collot deserves to be, and the American people have never redeemed their gratitude to genuine patriotism until that debt is paid. That's a great quote, especially, you yeah, know, absolutely. turning to we have so many controversies over statues and history and things like that. It's mm-hmm. To me, it's amazing. You know, we're so debating over, you know, which statues to take down. And I, I find it remarkable that today, at least to my knowledge, the city of New Orleans doesn't have a single statue to Captain Collot, even though this man right. was a hero who served with distinction at this battle, should be known by the people of New Orleans, certainly, you know, why don't we have today people working to create more statues to people like him, whose name is almost completely forgotten? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a problem you see. New Orleans, it's interesting you bring that up because PGT Beauregard, majorly popular Confederate commander during the Civil War, very kind of a cool guy of Confederate command. He actually, after the war, worked very hard to try to see the integration of black people into society into especially he he helped form the unification party and one of their major points of focus was employment making sure that sort of this whole idea of equal employment very ahead of its time in a way but then also voting rights of course trying to ensure that blacks had the same voting rights as whites and like many of these sort of efforts that took place during the reconstruction era it of course kind of fell apart largely due to a lot of outcry from those in the public sector who just did not like it. They didn't agree with it. But it is sad. It's tragic because I, I bring up PGT Beauregard because they, his monument was in New Orleans and it was removed because he was a Confederate. So I think what you see with these monuments is there's this – with the moves around the monuments to take them down and whatnot, there is not a lot of effort taken to see the history behind them. 
I think people very much take them at their face value. They see PGT Beauregard's Confederate. We need to remove his monument. But if you actually look at who he was and what he did, I think if people knew that, a lot of them would not feel the same way about taking down his statue. One of the things I took away from your piece, too, is that you included the Civil War issues, you included World War II, World War One, in which people who were definitely marginalized in those days were still patriots. They right. still believed right. in the founding ideals of the country, even if the founders themselves were flawed people. The ideals mm-hmm. were worth fighting for. And kind of versus today, there's a lot of people who – in most cases, have not been themselves marginalized yeah. uh, themselves, but they're they're demanding statues come down and they, they insist that there's nothing good about America. Right. I mean, I wonder if you might want to even sort of address that point, if, if that's part of what this piece was in, in terms of addressing this larger point of how, how we've had a lot of patriotic people in minority groups. Yeah, so absolutely. This piece, I mean, part of it, I wanted to celebrate some of these units that some are better known than others. Mm-hmm. But that was one thing that really struck out to me is I've studied the Civil War for a little while now. One thing that has always stuck out to me, especially about the black troops, and I use the Civil War as an example. If you can yeah, understand the Civil War, you can understand America. Right. Most obvious example. Right, exactly. Of a it's also one that was documented, so it's one of the right. easiest to study. But I came across this question multiple times while writing in peace. Why would people fight so hard for a country that a lot would say has not treated them well? Uh, many would say... That country has been very bad to them. And in many ways, that is true. The people have a lot of these the men in these units themselves suffered, you know, oppression and injustice. I mean, I look at black soldiers during the Civil War. They were paid, you know, instead of the $13 a month, they were paid $10 a month. And then, you know, the quartermaster general, whoever was supplying them, took out an extra $3 for supplies. And so they were fighting for almost just over half of what other units were fighting for. Actually, at the Battle of Velocity, when the 54th was sent forward— Kind of as a joke, one of the men basically said forward for $7 a month as a joke, but they they went forward yelling that. So I think that's sort of an example of this this attitude that all these units really demonstrate that even though this country's not perfect, I have not, you know, if anyone really has a right to protest about wrongs, it's uh, it's it's these groups. Yet they, I think, realize that America, thanks to our founding principles and our founding documents— has the groundwork to where they could build a better country for themselves and their children, has the tenets that allow for freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and that that is something worth fighting for regardless of how they've been treated. I think a lot of them committed themselves to building a better country, and I really admire that because in a lot of these, especially the Civil War again, White soldiers who, let's say, were wounded or surrendered were generally treated pretty well. Obviously, Mm -hmm. there were some horrible prison camps, but for the most part, they'd be paroled and sent home. They'd be taken care of by a surgeon. And you see the black troops, and they really put a lot more in the line when they served. If they were wounded, say, for example, the Battle of Alesti, there are actually accounts, recorded accounts of this happening. A lot of the wounded soldiers were, the wounded black soldiers were bayoneted. And it was really sad because they were actually sent forward to save retreating Union forces. So they are really played this very sacrificial role and paid very dearly for it because in covering the retreat, they took a lot of fire. They took a lot of casualties. A lot of men went down. Pretty much almost all those wounded men were bayoneted or clubbed or killed where they lie. And the ones captured were often sent back into slavery. That happened at the battles of Dalton. That was in Georgia. And then the battle of Fort Pillow is really notorious Uh, where Confederate forces took a Union 
fort and one of the regiments, there was a black regiment, and they tried to surrender and were just slaughtered. A few of them were spared and sent back into slavery. So that's what really stuck out to me when I was doing my research was how much more these men had on the line fighting. But I think they did that because they had so much more to gain. And I think these men really appreciated and were willing to die for the values that America has. Those are all good points. And they were fighting for an America that they could actually aspire to. I mean, this if you're willing to enlist in the U.S. military as these men were and willing to, I mean, really lay down their lives for this country, it shows that they're willing to commit to that future America in which a lot of these promises – may come true, maybe not for themselves, maybe not for their children, but at somewhere down the line. I think, you know, look, you see certainly in the, the history of the world, there have been many tyrannies and oppressions. But in a lot of those, of those cases, people eventually looked elsewhere. They fled elsewhere, which is very common. I mean, that's why most uh, Americans are here today, right, because we right. fled from, from elsewhere, other, you know, tyrannies, other terrible situations. I mean, I think almost every family has, you know, stories of this. But to a certain extent, there is something to be said about the fact that these men who even under situations where they're not treated equally by their neighbors were, I mean, some of them yeah. faced real oppression that, frankly, no American today alive could even under, uh, imagine. Absolutely. Things like, you know, slavery, it's almost unimaginable that these men were willing to to fight and die to make sure that they could be Americans and have the equal treatment of the law that is somewhat, somewhat of a promise of what this country was originally built on uh, is a very dramatic thing. I, I think that's not something to be taken for granted, and certainly the sacrifice of these men. You know, perhaps this is why they were fighting so hard. A lot of these units did distinguish themselves right, to right. show themselves that, hey, look, we're as good American as anybody. We love this country. We're patriots, Absolutely. and we're going to fight and die, and we're going to show you that we can be as good at troops. We're going to be better than everybody else. Yeah, yeah. that's one thing that and, – and it's sad because of you know public-facing uh, agendas on both sides, but really especially on the north, you saw a lot of times commanders would rather throw in fresh green white troops – that green means unexperienced, unseasoned. They would throw them into combat before sending in veteran black soldiers because they were afraid of how it would look. Some were – at the Battle of the Crater, for example, at Petersburg, a lot of the commanders were overcompensating, I think, in that they didn't want it to seem that they were throwing away black troops by sending them in first. So they sent in white troops who were inexperienced and it caused a big jam and there was a pretty bad slaughter there. They eventually sent in the black troops – but that was a huge issue really that plagued the North. But still, I mean, what blows me away is throughout all that, they fought – all these soldiers, th- these black soldiers fought very valiantly. And a lot of them – I think one of the reasons they did fight so hard was because this idea of if I'm wounded or if I'm captured, I mm-hmm. will either die or be sent back into slavery, which I'm sure for many probably seemed even worse than death. But regardless of that, I do – I think you're right. I think that they realized that – this country is is one unlike any other. It is one where although there are things we may not like about it, we can change those things and we can work towards changing them. Yeah, those are excellent points. And as, as you said too, you know, looking at a lot of these figures and characters, especially when we're dealing with a lot of the complicated nature of history, I think is always yeah. important. And so much of these modern debates over you know, this stature or that, you know, takes a lot of that nuance out of these things, why they were put up. I mean, 
I mean, we've had some crazy things like Washington, D.C. people protesting an Albert Pike statue. If you've never heard of Albert Pike, I don't blame you. Apparently, he did serve in the Confederacy during the war. His statue in D.C. is because of his role in the Freemasons. Right. I, it almost seems like people just wikipedia and found one guy who was associated with the Confederacy and decide, well, we need to go pull that statue down. Yeah. And people are up in arms about this this yeah. thing. Uh, and, and Confederate it, statue. Right. The Confederate statue. And, you know, and we, we've had so many other instances. I mean, recently, you know, Charlottesville obviously has been right, ground right. zero. And mm-hmm. Fred has actually reported on, on quite a bit, actually went to Charlottesville. Right. Both of us have written, you know, we actually have at this point now a, a Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea statue uh, being that's going to be pulled down now. Uh, so we've seen a really rapid Descent from when we were talking initially about you know Confederate statues to just it seems like everything now is under and we don't and we don't have that corresponding well here's the history we should celebrate who are the, it simply seems to be a negative rather than a positive which I see at large part of American history is we build upon what we've had we we, we have new heroes we we look at things differently right, right we try to understand what we're about in the past the imperfect past to create a better future I mean is, does that seem like a better way forward than what we're currently doing? Yeah, I, th- I think what we're currently seeing is honestly a sort of tribalism. I think it's easy to jump into a group of people who are almost warlike in nature and ready to take action. That doesn't really require a lot of thought. It doesn't really require a lot of reflection or introspection or even really basic opinion for me. You're joining in with a mob. And I think you're calling for something to be done that you don't entirely understand the implications behind. Like you said, I think a good example of acquiring sort of an understanding, a cultural understanding of a situation is the Florida State University. They're the only mm-hmm. – I think – I believe they're the only university who, or the only sports program that went to a Native American tribe and asked permission to you know, use their – their name and their motifs and their branding. But regardless, I think one of the reasons that people don't get up in arms about the Seminoles is because people in Florida understand who the Seminole are. They understand the Seminole Wars. They understand the culture. So that's – I think what we're seeing is people who are coming into these circles that are calling for the deconstruction of monuments and they don't have a cultural understanding. And so I think the more we can do to educate people – about who these men like Beauregard were, who these men, who Lewis and Clark were, you know, what they did for our country and pulling people back to, you know, the values that, because ultimately when you do that, you can't help but talk about the values that America has. If you talk about the 54th or if you talk about, you know, the 369th Infantry, the Harlem Hellfighters, you can't help but talk about American values. And so I think the more discussions we can have like that, the more I think we can pull people out of those kind of warlike those warlike mobs. Some of the good things Hollywood has actually done in, in the last, I guess, decade or so. I mean, they made the movie about the 54th Glory. Right, right. Uh, the, there was a movie about the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. There was a movie about the Navajo uh, Code. Yep, uh, Code Talkers. Code Talkers, right, right, which was in your piece. It could be focused on the positive as opposed to these people who we've been taught were good, Thomas Jefferson and so forth, or were bad. We need to eradicate them from history. That seems to be the modern – in more recent years, that seems yeah. to be the modern approach as opposed to, well, there's other people we can really celebrate that really tie back to what America's mission is about mm-hmm. as opposed to focusing on the flaws of the founders, the human flaws of yeah. the founders. I think it's very easy to look at the flaws of the founders and just want to 
shred their legacies, shred who they are as people, to kind of just go after them. Like in basically the monuments, the tearing down of the monuments is really, I think, a manifestation of that. I think, though, if you really actually take the time to study these men, what becomes painfully clear is that we're really no better than a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. We all have vices, as did they. And so I think it's very easy to go back and look at history with this sort of lens of moral superiority to take the moral high grounds like, I would have never done that, or I would have never supported that, or (laughs) I could never imagine myself being in league with those people. But yet, I think people 100 years from now, 200 years from now, could look at us and say the same thing. 100%. Well, and I would say, you know, they may look with horror on some of the things that we practice today. And I think maybe (laughs) rightly so. We we look at our society and say, you know, are we so superior? Yes, we've we've eliminated some really terrible things, but we've created new terrible things uh, that 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 generation couldn't imagine, would have seen as a moral abomination. I think think rightly so. And, you know, it is always easy, as you said, to go back, you know, thinking of sins that you yourself could never imagine yourself committing and, of course, throwing stones at those. Uh, To me, it's more remarkable for those who stood against it, even though they were very much enmeshed in a system that they saw as immoral, and doing something about it and and saying that it's something that is wrong. I mean, to me, that's why I... I always give credit to Thomas Jefferson, of course, the generation of founders who put in our literally in our founding document, you know, all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights in a country that still had race based slavery. To me, to some that shows the utter hypocrisy. To me, that shows uh, the bravery, the convictions. I mean, to me, uh, that sealed the fate of, of slavery in this country forever. Americans knew from then on that that's what this country was founded on. The, the idea that race-based slavery could exist was always going to be an intentional one. And obviously, you know, Abraham Lincoln, his house of the, you know, Christ of the House Divided speech, made that for sure. Right. And so these things, when they're taken in a, in a deeper perspective of time, and especially the realization that history is, you know, not rainbows and sunshine, it's mostly Correct. petty tyrannies yeah. and, and various uh, sufferings and misery, you can more appreciate uh, the acts of courage that actually led to better freedom and liberty and the good life, I think, that many of us today certainly have in this country and mm-hmm. places throughout the globe. Well, and, you know, on that note, I think one thing that – We need to do more of again is have discussions about this sort of thing because you look at something like slavery and you ask yourself, you know, how could the founders have put this in our constitution? And regardless, yes, slavery was eradicated. That was wonderful. Huge step forward for the United States morally, really. I think, though, if they would have had more of these sort of conversations, these honest conversations about what are the things that we're doing that are not right? Because I think especially, you know, the United States came about sort of in this period of enlightenment when I think a lot of people believed that through intellectualism and through bettering ourselves, we can kind of create a perfect world. That is the enlightenment, I guess, in a nutshell, paraphrased from a kid who, you know, was educated in Florida. I say all that to say the Civil War was an unfortunate boiling point that I think we're headed to in a lot of different areas. I don't think it's going to look the same, but I think that if we can't figure out how to discuss the things that are wrong with our country in a civil way, then we are headed towards, I don't know if it's violence, but some sort of conflict to where we fragment as a culture. And so I think that's why, again, reminding people of the history behind these monuments, behind these regiments, behind these units is so, so, so critical in avoiding... You know, the sort of conflicts that these men fought in 
Yeah, that's that's strangely for sure. meta. Yeah. Uh, you know, we uh, you hope that we won't have to relearn the lessons that that generation of Americans did. Uh, it's actually there's a great book I do like to tout. It's called This Republic of Suffering by Drew Gulpenfass. Is it? At Harvard, it's actually an excellent book about suffering and death in the Civil War. And for those who long for you know an American cracking up and breaking apart, you know, definitely read that book, and you understand the the inhuman misery that that right. war created. Uh, you know, I it's hard to imagine America ever getting back to that point. But I think that's why we study. I think that's why we try Absolutely. to understand it and say that we do hope we can create an America with a, a united set of principles. Look, America is you know out of many one. That's always yeah. been what we're about. But a country still ultimately united. Uh, I can't imagine the ugliness that will follow if we really do splinter. And I worry about the gap, I think, in the, in the outlook of Americans today, which I think is quite vast, I, I think, in, in how we see the world. Uh, it's a dangerous one. It's one that we're going to have to overcome like that yeah. generation did. Hopefully we do it better next time. And, and hopefully it doesn't actually end up becoming to, to violence and blows. I think Absolutely. that's the project we'll of being American. So we are in a cold civil war, so – <laughs> Many who say that, and let's you know, let's hope and pray that we never end up in a hot one. Because yeah, anybody who studied that conflict knows the misery that left its wake, and the yeah. miracle that this country is once again one nation under God. That the near miracle that that country coming back together in any form uh, is something we should also very much appreciate. Absolutely, and and I think that's the danger of taking the moral high grounds. You refuse to acknowledge that you're wrong, and I. I see even – I look at something like the Troubles in Ireland. That was that period of, of yes. a lot of sort of clandestine warfare and violence. And I can almost see that sort of as being a precedent for a conflict that could take place in a modern Western country like the United States. I was talking to my brother recently. He he studies World War II history. He's still a university student, but he's also a history nut. Even if he doesn't say his, I'm claiming him as one. But he was talking about how these German policemen – who would basically assisted in the Holocaust. They were the manpower on the ground that made the Holocaust possible. These guards and policemen, they were regular, ordinary people just like us. They had families and they were you yeah. know, loving fathers and loving husbands. And I think it's very scary to look at men who are capable of such evil and see how good and normal they are. But then I think if you really look at them close enough, you realize you're kind of looking at yourself. You're looking at human nature, which I think we all like to think we're better than we are, but we're also more dangerous and more capable of evil than we realize. And again, if you are not honest in how you study history and honest in how you look at yourself, you are going to end up in another conflict that we – one of many that we've studied throughout the ages. Yeah, I, I, I kind of almost see that, you know, especially from those who do have a kind of a far left point of view, have a more utopian point of view. Maybe that the part of the reason why they always see, you know, fascism looming just around the corner at all times is because they don't try to understand human nature. They don't try to understand these things. So it to them seems like, well, this just came out of a clear blue sky. I think understanding the capacity for human evil, right. which, you know, as conservative, I, I, you know, I have a very pessimistic view of human nature, but I'm an optimist in that I think, you know, human beings have done a good job of working yeah. around. I think that's the beauty of the American system. I think it's mm-hmm. the beauty of the Constitution. Absolutely. What this country was created on was an understanding of human nature, channeling this into good things and positive things, recognizing that there's an ugly side of humanity that will never go away. No matter, you know, until the end of time, this will be a part of what we are. But we can channel that into very good things. And that's Absolutely. maybe the beauty of, you know, this country compared to so many others is that, you know, that potential is, is certainly there. And also, we are kind of protected from ourselves in this country. 
country. Yeah. We have a constitution. We have amendments to the constitution. We have the a rule of law. Yeah. We have the rule of law, which is incredibly important. So, well, uh, thank you so much, Philip, for writing this piece and kind of bringing these issues to our attention. I, again, it's a great piece. You really should read it. It's called The Black Regiment That Began in American Tradition. It really celebrates the history, not just of the 54th Massachusetts, but of the many, especially black and, and minority regiments and soldiers who have fought in our country's wars and a really good tribute uh, to what that is. So, so thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on The Right Side of History. Again, my name is Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. You can check out our podcast on Ricochet, Stitcher, and on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.